Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. If you want to take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7, and we're covering the entire chapter. Also, just to give you a preview of where we're heading as we finish out the year, we will next week cover all of chapter 8, and then we're going to take a break and really focus on Christmas beginning after next Sunday. So we're looking forward to that. We'll be looking at each week of Advent, hope, joy, peace, and love, looking at what God's Word has to teach us about those things, and then rejoicing, of course, in the incarnation and the birth of Christ as we gather on Sunday morning, Christmas Eve. But this morning we are in chapter 7, and I'm going to read the entire chapter because, of course, reading God's Word is the most important thing we can do together this morning, and then we will take time and pray and ask for the Lord's help and then look at the chapter in detail. So 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, every week we do this same thing because every week 
we just want to acknowledge that we desperately need your help. We want to come before you confessing that apart from the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are without hope this morning. Apart from his work in our place on the cross, we would not have the spirit dwelling in us. We would not have our eyes awakened to the realities of who you are as you are revealed in the truth of your word. And so, Father, we just ask you to do what you have already promised to do, and that is that by the power of your spirit, that you would awaken us to the truth of your word. Allow us to see who you are, learn more about you, learn more about our need for a savior, learn more of the glories of your name, that our faith might be strengthened and that we might live for your glory, that we might be week by week, day by day, transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would use your word this morning. Pray that you would use it to encourage us, to challenge us, to convict us of sin. And Father, we pray that you would be at work in us for the glory of your name. I ask that you would, Father, guard my words, allow me to say only what is true of you, only what is true of your word. And we pray that you would do all of this for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every culture or generation or generations within cultures develop their own sayings, their own word. You all do it, right? You had things that you said when you were younger. And in fact, I mean, if I'm being honest, there are times when I'm texted by someone younger than me and I have to go Google what in the world they're trying to say to me. I'll have to Google the acronym. I'll have to Google the word and figure out what are you trying to communicate because I don't have a clue. In fact, I didn't tell her I was going to say this, but now that I have a daughter in college, I very much find myself as the grumpy old get off my lawn kind of guy when she brings home some of these sayings from school that make absolutely no sense to me. I cannot roll my heads farther back in my head when I hear some of these phrases that are used by the younger generation, let's say. Let's give some examples, all right? Let's, let's embarrass them a little bit. Or maybe it embarrasses me. I don't know which it is, all right? So when I learned that people say, quote, she ate, A-T-E, like she ate food, that she ate means someone looks amazing or did something with style, what in the world are you talking about? It means she ate and had no, like, got no crumbs on her clothes. They use this word all the time. I had no idea, right, when they said that. I could not have been more confused. Or if someone, instead of saying, sure, I'll do that, they'll just say, bet. Okay, well, that means, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. And I don't understand these words because I'm not in that world. I'm not around people using those words or using those sayings. Someone could literally insult me to my face, and I wouldn't have a clue what they were talking about, right? Someone could say something like, uh, you don't want to catch these hands. And I would say, oh, you want to toss the football? But no, they mean they want to fight, right? I, you have no understanding of what people are saying to you. Well, the reality is that the Bible also uses words and descriptions that we may not fully understand in our modern cultural context that we've become somewhat disconnected from. And we may not even realize that we're reading something or there's some scriptural biblical concept and we have no idea that maybe we should be a little bothered by what the Word of God is saying about us. In fact, one of the ways the Bible describes you and me that's really not flattering at all, if we're being honest, is that it continually refers to us, me included, as sheep. And you read that and you don't think much about it. But we even use that word. That's even a modern word. If you call someone a sheep, you mean they're just following somebody without giving it any thought. They're just following the crowd. And we insult this certain segment of society that we think aren't thinking. We call them sheep. But guess what? The Bible calls all of you sheep, me included. And it means that same thing. 
We are liable to just follow the crowd. We're just liable to wander off and follow who, whatever sheep's in front. We're going to walk right after them. It's somewhat insulting to be called a sheep. We wander off. We follow leaders, sometimes bad, sometimes good. Isaiah 53, 6 says that we all like sheep have gone astray. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus sees a great crowd and has compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. It's not a good thing to be a sheep without a shepherd. John chapter 10, Jesus makes clear that that we are the sheep and that Jesus is the good shepherd. Peter chapter 2 verse 25 says, For you were, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, of course, talking about Jesus. And when God describes the leaders of local churches, when he gives a, one of the describing words he gives for elders or pastors, the word pastor means shepherd. It means to shepherd. Ephesians 4.11, he calls us shepherds. The ESV in Ephesians 4.11 uses the literal word shepherd. In 1 Peter 5.2, pastors and elders are called to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So here's the reality the Bible is communicating by calling us sheep, and you may not realize it. We are hardwired to follow leaders, good or bad. That's who we are by nature. We're wired to get lost and to wander off when we have no leadership. And we need to know that about ourselves so that we can be acutely aware of two things. First of all, no human was meant to live in isolation without being led. All of us, me included, I need leaders in my life. It's one of the reasons of the wisdom of a plurality of elders and pastors in the local church. The buck doesn't stop with me. I have men pastoring me who are my pastors. I pastor them. All of us, all of us need faithful leaders in our lives. Two, we need to be aware of who we are as sheep so that we are extremely careful about who we allow to lead us because you will follow them. You will. Because the Bible says you are, and I am, we're sheep. Therefore, when God provides godly, faithful, spiritual leaders, we should be overwhelmed with gratitude and thanksgiving because the first six chapters of Samuel have been a clear demonstration of what failed spiritual leadership looks like. Right, we, It starts almost at the beginning with Eli, essentially the high priest at the time, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And they are a corrupt group of leaders in the priestly class. They are stealing the sacrifice with, from people. They are laying with women who are serving in the interests of the temple. These are terrible, awful, wicked people. And it's tempting to say, well, that was the leaders and not everybody else. But, but as we have seen, as the chapters have developed, there are some faithful people. But ultimately, we're going to discover this whole time they were worshiping idols. The people were because they were following evil, corrupt leaders. That's why God struck down 30,000 soldiers when they went up against the Philistines because he was delivering his wrath to all the people, not just the leaders. It's why when the ark finally returned from being captured by the Philistines, when it finally returned to Beth Shemesh, the people disobeyed God and they looked upon the ark or looked in the ark and he struck them down because they deserved it. They were sheep following unfaithful leaders. But you see, there's a dramatic shift that happens in chapter 7. In chapter 7, God provides a faithful, godly shepherd for his sheep. 
and it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. Remember when Israel was defeated earlier in chapter 4, and Phineas's wife gave birth to a son as she was dying and taking her last breath, she named her son Ichabod because it meant the glory of God has departed. And as we approach into chapter 7, we're still in that age of Ichabod, the glory of God has departed. He's not present with his people because his people are in rebellion. But by the time we get to the end of chapter seven, we're at the age of Ebenezer. The Lord has helped us. So how do we get from Ichabod to Ebenezer? Well, it's clear in chapter seven that the difference is in God's faithfulness and grace and mercy to his people, he gives them Samuel as their faithful shepherd, their judge, their leader who leads them in righteousness. So this passage allows us to see how God uses faithful shepherds to lead his people. And we need to know what are the characteristics of faithful leaders, of faithful shepherds like Samuel. And so I want us to see three characteristics of faithful leaders this morning. Faithful leaders, number one, call us to repentance. Faithful leaders call us to repentance. Number two, faithful leaders intercede for us through trials. And number three, Faithful leaders remind us of God's faithfulness. They remind us of God's faithfulness. So let's look at this first one. Faithful leaders, faithful shepherds, call us to repentance. Look there with me, beginning in verse 1. It says, The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. So this is just continuing the story from from last week. The ark has returned to Israel from the captivity by the Philistines and the havoc, the judgment that God brought on the Philistine people. They send the ark away. And the way they send the ark away proved that it was God's judgment, in fact, that came upon them. The ark arrives in Beth Shemesh. And as I mentioned earlier, God's people disobediently look upon the ark. It should have been covered. And the Levites, the priests, should have known that. They should have had the ark covered. That was God's demand, his requirements. That's in the law. But it wasn't covered. And so they looked upon the ark. And God struck many of the men down for their disobedience and rebellion. And so they said, get the ark away from us. Send it away. And so the men of Kiriath-Jerim, they come and they get the ark. That's what's happening in verse 1. And then verse 2, we have this really important timestamp that the author of Samuel lays down. You see that in verse 2? From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So 20 years, the, the ark is removed from Beth Shemesh, it goes to Kiriath-Jerim, and 20 years pass. And at the end of that 20 years, verse 2 says, the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that they lamented after the Lord? That's a phrase, another example that we don't really use in this sense anymore. Some translations render it, I think, helpfully as longed for. Another translation could be mourned after. They were lamenting that they were not walking with the Lord. They were longing to walk faithfully with the Lord. That was their desire by the time they come to the end of this 20 years. They lamented after the Lord. And it's written in such a way that it seems like it comes across as they really didn't know what to do with that desire. They longed for the Lord. They wanted to return to the Lord. But what are they supposed to do? And that's where God in his grace and mercy to them has prepared Samuel for this moment, right? Samuel's now a grown man. This is 20 years later, right? We, we saw his birth story at the beginning of 1 Samuel 1. 
and the faithfulness of his mother. And we saw Hannah's prayer and how she delivered him over to serve the Lord. And now lots of time has passed. And Samuel has been being prepared by God for this day. And Samuel comes to lead his people to direct their hearts back to the Lord. To help them understand what they need to do with this desire that they have. He comes in in verse 3 and gives them the direction that they desperately need. Now notice with me, when Samuel comes, he doesn't sugarcoat things. He doesn't coddle them. He is honest, truthful, and direct. He says, okay, if you are longing after the Lord, if you are lamenting after the Lord, this is what you must do. You see this there in verse 3? If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then there are things that you must do. It reminds me of what John the Baptist, when he was baptizing and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came out to him because they desired the same baptism. And John the Baptist said to them, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. If your repentance is genuine, if you genuinely are turning away from your sin and turning toward the Lord, then you must bear fruit. You must demonstrate with your life that that is a genuine desire. So Samuel says, look, if this is true, if this is really what you want, if you really want to return to the Lord with all your heart, then this is what you must do. You must put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. You see, this is Samuel simply applying God's law in a straightforward, direct way. Because what, what's the first commandment say? Thou shalt have no other gods before, beside me. None. No, no one. There can be none. You can't be like the nations around you, Israel. Remember what the Philistines did? When they captured the ark that they assumed to be the God of Israel, they captured the ark and they put it beside Dagon, their God, right? They just collect gods. The more gods you can have, the better. Let's just collect up the gods of the nations. No, no, Samuel says that is not God's desire. If you're going to follow him, you follow him alone. And you must put away all other idols, all other gods, the Ashtaroth, and the foreign gods. This is simply a way of saying, put away all the gods. The Astaroth was a feminine god. Baal was a masculine god. He's simply, by, by saying this, he's saying, put them all away. It doesn't matter who they are. doesn't matter what their name is, what nation they came from. Put the idols away, Israel. And then you must serve the Lord your God only. He will have no competitors. You must give your heart and your devotion to him and to him alone. And by the way, this just reminds us of how far gone God's people were. They had the gods of the nations, these idols in their homes, worshiping them. I mean, this is astonishing, is it not? And yet, there's still opportunity for them to return to the Lord. You see, this is what a faithful shepherd of God's people must do. When someone says, I want to come to the Lord, I want to follow Jesus, I want to trust in him, I want to give my life to him, I want, to, I want Christ to be the Lord of my life, then the job of a faithful shepherd is not, hey, that's great, let's just, uh, you can kind of just keep doing what you're doing and just come to church and it'll all be good. No, that's not what a faithful shepherd does. A faithful shepherd says, great, fantastic, now you've got to put to death all the other gods and idols you have in your life because he will have no competitors. 
Turn away from all of those things that you give your devotion to, that you make a priority above God. They cannot be a part of what it means to walk with Jesus anymore. Now, I'm not saying that happens immediately on day one, but I am saying that this is part of the discipleship process that we value so much in this church. It's growing in Christ and learning what it means to let go of the idols in our life. We must faithfully help people see what they're clinging to in their lives. Even as Steve mentioned in his prayer, there are idols we're hanging on to that we don't even know we're hanging on to. And we need faithful shepherds to tell us, I think you need to let go of that one. That's impeding your walk with Christ. You're, you're worshiping and following that thing instead of God himself. So Samuel's faithful to tell them, to call them to repentance, to tell them what they must do. The people carry it out. You see that in verse 4? The people of Israel, they did it. They put away the bells and the asteroth, and they served the Lord only. This is the divine word of God, the inspired word of God, describing to us what they did. They actually followed through on this. They put the idols away. They served the Lord only. And Samuel calls them together. They gather together to pray to the Lord. And we see more fruit of repentance. In verse 6, they drew water and poured it out and fasted. Right? They poured the water out. They said, here's the water. We're not drinking it. We're not eating anything. We're not drinking any water. We're going to fast and pray before the Lord, because we need to deal with the Lord as we put these idols out of our lives. And it says they confessed at the end of verse six, we have sinned against the Lord. You see, Samuel's faithful leadership brought them to a place of repentance and confession to acknowledge that they had been in rebellion, that they had sinned against God himself. I mean, this is such a dramatic shift from what we saw happening in chapter four. Remember in chapter 4, when the Philistines were gathered up to threaten God's people, they thought all they needed to do was bring in the magic Ark of the Covenant, and God would rout the Philistines before them. They would be victorious, that God would lead them into victory just because they had this box among them. They didn't worry about their hearts. They didn't worry about their sin. They were completely indifferent to it. But here, it's a totally different story. Here, they they turn to the Lord. And Samuel says, if you do this, God will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now they're putting their hope and their repentance, their confession. They're putting away the idols and turning to God and serving him only. See, through Samuel's faithful leadership, they come to learn that victory will come if their hearts are in the right place, not if the ark is in the right place. And listen, you and I desperately need faithful leaders to keep reminding us to put the false gods out of our lives. Remember a few weeks ago, I mentioned the quote from John Calvin that said, our hearts are continual idol factories. We love, apart from Christ, worshiping idols. It is the story of the Old Testament in many ways when God's people are unfaithful to him. There are even places in scripture where God's people were worshiping idols and we don't even realize that they're doing it. So for example, if you look at Ezekiel chapter 20, reflecting back on their time in Egypt, remember the time when God came and powerfully rescued them? Ezekiel chapter 20 tells us that God's people are continually having to be told to put away idols. It says in Ezekiel 20 that while they were in Egypt, while they were enslaved in Egypt, they were worshiping the gods of Egypt. And yet God comes and he rescues them. And then he miraculously shows his power among them, right? You know the story. Since the 10 plagues, they walk on dry land through the Red Sea. He's working in powerful ways. And then you get to Leviticus chapter 17. God's people are out there. They've been rescued. And Leviticus 17, 7 says, talking about God's people, 
They shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. You don't think about that's what God's people are doing after they've been rescued out of Egypt. They're still offering sacrifices to goat demons. Or Joshua 24, 14. The people have come into the promised land. They've crossed the Jordan on dry ground. They march around Jericho. The walls fall down, right? They take the land. God's power could not be more clear. And yet after that, when Joshua gives his speech in Joshua 24, he still has to say to them, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Because they were still worshiping false gods. The human heart will always turn to idols. Judges chapter 10, they have to be told to put away the foreign gods. They're told here in 1 Samuel 7 to put away the foreign gods. And praise be to God in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, we read of the power of the gospel. And it says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. You see, you just need to know this about your heart. I need to know this about my heart. In our fallen, sin-stained status, we are drawn to false gods and idols. And we need faithful shepherds who call us to repentance and won't allow us to coddle our idols, but who instead will call us to cast them down and destroy them. And I'm not saying I just need to do that for you. I'm saying I need men to do that for me too. It's why what I mentioned earlier, it's why the wisdom of the Bible to have a plurality of elders, multiple pastors in a church, because Chris, Nathaniel, and Floyd need to be pastoring me and being sure that I'm putting the idols to death in my life. And Lord willing, by his grace, I will help you do the same in yours. I mean, we even see in Galatians, Paul's writing to us, and Paul tells us about how he had to rebuke Peter. Everybody needs a faithful shepherd. Everybody needs one. And they are a gift of God to us. When Samuel showed up, God's people were changed because he was a gift of God to them. And a faithful leader will always call for repentance among God's people. A faithful leader will not allow people just to continue on in their sin. But not only will a faithful leader call us to repentance, a faithful leader will also intercede for us through trials. Look there with me at verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. So here is Israel having essentially a prayer meeting, right? They're fasting before the Lord. They're they're praying. They're confessing their sins. And they have this large gathering that's occurred. And the Philistines look on and they see it. And they mistakenly think that Israel is gathering for battle. And so the Philistines feel like they need to respond. And so they gather up and they get ready to attack Israel. And of course, when they, the Philistines gather up, the people of Israel are afraid. You see that at the end of verse 7? When they heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. They had a reason to be afraid. Just a little over 20 years ago, they went up against the Philistines, and what happened? 30,000 men were slaughtered. The Bible says it was a very great slaughter. But do you see what's different now? How do they respond at verse 8? Did they say, go get the Ark of the Covenant? And what did they say in verse 8? They said to Samuel, their shepherd, their leader, their judge, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They're asking Samuel to intercede on their behalf. They're pleading with Samuel to cry out to the Lord. 
They're not leaning on anything else except the Lord's kindness and mercy to them. The humility in this is so drastically different than the arrogance and pride in chapter four. These are a different people. They've been changed. They've turned away from their sin. They put the idols out of their life. And so they're begging Samuel to pray for them. And Samuel, being the faithful, good shepherd that he is, does exactly what they ask. Verse 9, he takes the nursing lamb, offers it as a burnt offering to the Lord, and he cries out to the Lord for Israel. He prays for them. He cries out to them. And I think this text hints that this is a test from the Lord. Right? They turn away from their idols. They confess their sin. They say, we're going to serve the Lord only. And what's the next thing that happens? There's a threat. The Philistines gather up. What are God's people going to do in that moment? Are they going to revert to their old ways of putting their hope in idols, putting their hope in false gods? No, because of Samuel's faithfulness, because of his leadership, he has prepared them for this. You see, you've, you've heard the saying, all of us have heard the saying, There are no atheists in a foxhole. I think that's probably largely true, but there are lots of idol worshipers in foxholes who call out to all kinds of false gods that they think exist, that they're leaning and depending on, that it's not the true triune God. The question is, to what God are you crying out? And God's people here demonstrate that they have, in fact, put the idols away. And when the threat rises, the fruit of their repentance seems clear. They're calling on Samuel to pray to the one true God. And I think the timing of verse 10 is significant because it says, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, in the moment he was doing it, while he was in the act of praying and offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. Samuel's not on the offensive. He's not ready for battle. Nobody's ready for battle. They're having a worship service. And the Philistines come ready to wipe them out. But what is it that the Lord does? You see that there in verse 10? The Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Oh, this could not be more different than chapter 4. They thought this was going to be what would happen in chapter 4, right? When they brought the the Ark of the God in, thinking their sins didn't matter, their rebellion against God didn't matter. All they needed was was this object that represented God's presence, and they bring it in. They thought that this is what would happen when they did that, but that's not what happened. There was a very great slaughter that day, but this day, when they humbled themselves, when they repented of their sin, when they put the false gods away from them, when their faithful shepherd prayed for them and interceded for them, what is it that happened in that moment? The Lord responded with the thunder of his voice and defeated the Philistines before them. I'll remind you that this is exactly what Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Let me read 1 Samuel 2 verses 9 and 10 for you. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And as we come to chapter 7, this is precisely what God does. God shows himself faithful to his people, and he thunders from heaven against them, and he defeats the Philistines before them. But then notice what comes in verse 11. Verse 10 says the Philistines are already defeated. God's beat them. But verse 11 says the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Again, this is an intentional contrast between this battle and the battle of chapter 4. 
Because in Shafor, it says that the people of Israel fled to their homes. They ran away. And here, because the Lord has already been victorious, they're emboldened and they have the courage to pursue the Philistines and strike them down. But notice the order here. The defeat came first. Then they pursued and struck them down. They didn't win the battle. Who won the battle? God won the battle. They just got to participate in it. This is how God operates. You see, it demonstrates the strength and victory of the Lord. They are resting in the strength and victory of God who thunders against his adversaries, who brings victory over his enemies. And I want you to see what the author of Samuel is in fact showing us here because it's tempting to make this chapter mainly about the repentance of God's people. And I believe that that reality is a big piece of this chapter. It is very much about the repentance of God's people. But the author is focused on Samuel's actions. It's Samuel who calls them to repentance. It's he who initiates that and tells them, instructs them, directs them on what that ought to look like. It looks like putting away foreign gods. It looks like fasting and praying and confessing your sin before him. It's Samuel who intercedes for them. It's Samuel who's calling out to the Lord on their behalf. It's Samuel who offers the burnt offering for them. It's because of Samuel's faithful leadership and Samuel's prayers that God's people are rescued because God is responding to his faithful leadership for the sake of his people. Now, the people were faithful to look to Samuel, but that's just the point. They needed him. They needed him as a gift from God to be their faithful shepherd. And as they followed him, the Lord was gracious to rescue them from the hand of the Philistines because he was willing to intercede for his people so that they could endure the trial of the attack of the Philistines and remain faithful. Look, one of the main jobs of shepherds and pastors in a local church is to pray for God's people. That's why in Acts chapter 6, it says that a dispute arose about the, the widows, the Hellenist widows, not being served the same food or same amounts as everybody else. And the apostles in Acts 6 say, this is a something that's serious that we need to deal with but we want you to select servants, deacons from among you, servants from among you to work this problem out. Because, listen to what Acts chapter 6 verses 3 and 4 says. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles knew that they need to be freed up to give time to pray for God's people. That was one of the main roles they had been given as caretakers and shepherds of God's people. And what was the result of that? So, so this is what they do in Acts 6, 3, and 4. They, they, the people select servants to serve the tables so that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. And then Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You see, when God's shepherds of God's people spend time ministering the word and praying for God's people, God gives fruit. Look, our, one of our main roles as your pastors, and I say we because we have four pastors in this church, we have a plurality of elders, our job is to pray for you continually, daily. That's why we strive to have a list of every member of this church and regular attenders that we work through 
just on a rotating basis that we're praying through. It's why at the beginning of every elders meeting, we don't get into business immediately. We sit around and we say, what are ways we can be praying for God's people? And we talk through ways, needs that have arisen, things that are happening in people's lives. And we spend time praying for those things at the start of every elder meeting. I want you to know that. And I'm not, I know this could come across as somehow prideful or tooting our own horns, but I'm talking about the other three men who serve you. And by God's grace, I join with them in those prayers. And it ought to be our goal. And if we ever fail you in this, you need to hold us accountable. If we fail to call you to repentance, if we fail to be faithful shepherds who pray for you, that we're not worthy or qualified to be your shepherds any longer. So faithful shepherds will call God's people to repentance. Faithful shepherds will, will pray for, intercede for God's people through trials. And finally, faithful shepherds will remind us of God's faithfulness. Will remind us of God's faithfulness. Look with me at verse 12. It says, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. He takes, Samuel takes this stone. We don't know how big the stone is, but he sets it up and he calls the stone Ebenezer. The Ebenezer meaning stone of help. And he wants this to be a permanent reminder to God's people that God has been faithful. The first song we sang this morning was Come Thou Fountain. It has that line in the song. It's why Steve picked that song out for today. It says, here I raise my Ebenezer. And it's okay. Some of you may have sung that line and had not a clue what it meant. And that's okay. And some people change the lyrics to that song because they think people aren't going to know what in the world this is talking about. We don't want to change the lyric. We want to teach you what it's talking about. This is where it comes from. So the next time we sing, come thou fountain, just remember, this is the moment. This is the biblical moment, right? We can raise Ebenezer's in our own life. We can set up markers in our own life to be reminded that God has not failed us, that he is faithful to us. This is what Samuel does. You see, it's not just about helping people move forward. It's about helping people remember how faithful God has been so that they can move forward. Because here's the reality. You and I will always struggle with spiritual amnesia. We have short-term spiritual memories. God can walk with you through the darkest of days when you are at your end, when you are hurting, going through an incredibly difficult tragedy. And we will come out of the other side of that dark time and we'll see that God was faithful to us. We made it. Man, that was hard, but man, he was good. And then six months later, the dark clouds start gathering again. And we're filled with worry and anxiety and doubt. And we think, how are we going to get through this? God, where are you? Do you even care about me? And it's why we need Ebenezer's in our life. It's why Samuel set the stone up. So that in those moments when God's people would be tempted to doubt God's goodness, when they would be tempted to return to those other idols, to grab them from the trash bin, to say, no, look at that stone and do not forget he's been faithful. He's helped you to this point. He will continue to be faithful to you. Some of the Ebenezer's that we have in our church are given to us by Jesus himself. We observe the Lord's table communion once a month. That is an Ebenezer. It is a continual reminder of the broken body of Christ and the spilled blood of Christ in your place that gives you redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We want to continually one, because we're commanded to, but two, because it helps us remember. It helps us proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, is what 1 Corinthians 11 says. Every month we gather, it is a reminder, thus far the Lord has helped us. Every time we have a 
baptism in this church. It is an Ebenezer. As we put someone under the water, we immerse them in the water. It is a moment for them, but it's a moment for you too to remember that he has been faithful to you, that you are immersed into Christ. You are one with him. This has happened to you too. He's been faithful to you and he'll continue to be faithful to you. You see, one of the most important roles that we have as your pastors is day by day, week by week, reminding you that God has been faithful to you. The men have been going through 2 Peter and two sessions ago. We read in 2 Peter, studied in 2 Peter 1.12, where Peter says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Look, one of our, our, our role as your pastors is simply to week by week, year by year, keep reminding you of who God is. We have nothing innovative to share with you. We simply need to keep pointing you to who God is, what his word says, and reminding you. That's what we've been called to do. And it's something, by the way, that you can do for one another. It's one of the reasons testimonies are so powerful. Every time you share a testimony of God's faithfulness in your life, you're sitting up in Ebenezer for somebody else. God's been faithful. Look, I mean, I I wasn't planning to mention this, but I think just Steve and Lisa, the book that they just released last week, The Journey to Stay, That book is an Ebenezer. Their ministry to marriages that have been divided by infidelity, moving them from hurt to hope in Christ, in the gospel, that book tells their story. And it is a stone of help. It is a reminder that God is faithful. And we can read it and we can rejoice with them in God's faithfulness. Look, when you share your story, when you're willing to tell people how God has been faithful to you, it helps other people endure through their dark days too. And if we're going to be faithful leaders and faithful shepherds, then we too must raise up reminders of God's faithfulness in the life of this church and in your lives individually. Now, of course, Samuel was not perfect. We're going to read in chapter 8 how it seems he did not do a great job as a father. His sons were rebellious. There is no perfect man in Scripture, but praise be to God that he sent a perfect man. He sent a perfect great shepherd, right? Every other man will not be a perfect shepherd. We'll try our best. We'll strive to be faithful to the best of our God-given abilities by his grace. But we will fail you. We will let you down. We will disappoint you. Maybe I shouldn't lump the other three guys in. I will disappoint you. (laughs) I will let you down. It's going to happen. But Jesus won't. He is the great shepherd and overseers of our souls. And you know what Jesus does? He calls you to repentance. He says, put away the false gods and worship me alone. You know what else Jesus does? He intercedes for you day by day, moment by moment. He is at the Father's right hand interceding for you. He's praying for you. Even right now, this very moment. And he has given us reminders all over the place of his faithfulness. The cross, the empty tomb, the Lord's Supper, baptism, scripture, the local body. He wants you to remember his faithfulness, that thus far the Lord has helped, has helped us and he will not fail us. Praise be to God for our faithful, great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful. We're so thankful for your grace and mercy to us. Father, we confess that we are like sheep, that we are, as we sang, prone to wander. That's who we are. 
we confess that before you. And so, Father, I'm so thankful uh, for faithful men who have led me. Father, I'm thankful that you have given this church faithful elders like Floyd and Chris and Nathaniel to shepherd us well. Father, I pray that you would help me to be a faithful shepherd by your grace, by your power, by the work of your Holy Spirit in my life. Father, I pray that you would protect everyone in this room from being led astray by a false teacher who comes only to kill and steal and destroy. And I pray that we would only follow those who follow Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. And so, Father, I pray that you would, by your grace, keep our eyes fixed on things above where Christ is and that we would, day by day, week by week, year by year, follow our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' glory and worthy name, glorious and worthy name. Amen.